Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Today Michelle teaches from the book of Ephesians, a book that teaches the transforming power of Christ and who we really are in Christ. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now Michelle. Welcome to Ephesians Saved by Grace, Living in Power. In our last lesson, we learned how Paul had lived and taught in the city of Ephesus for three years. Ephesus was a major port on the trade routes between Rome and the continent of Asia. Many people came to that city to trade their goods, and what happened was they ended up taking the gospel home with them. You'll remember Paul's teaching was so effective that it caused a major shift in who people wanted to worship in that city, and that eventually caused the silversmiths of Ephesus to riot because their living was being threatened. You see, nobody wanted the little idols that they were making anymore. Well, once that riot had calmed down, Paul left the city to begin a previously planned journey to churches that he'd planted in the Roman provinces of Achaia and Macedonia. Not only did he want to go and encourage the Christians there in the foundations of the faith, but he also wanted to go to them to collect an offering that they wanted to send back to the poor in the church in Jerusalem. Paul was the one who planned to take the money there for them. And I mention that because this offering is really important because it shows us the love and concern that Gentile Christians had for their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. However, returning to Jerusalem was surely going to be a difficult journey for Paul to make, because he knew the dangers that awaited him in that city in the form of the Jewish religious leaders. After all, he'd once been a Pharisee, and he'd actually been one of the rising stars of that Jewish religious party, and as such, he'd been a persecutor of the early Christians. So you can imagine how his conversion to the very faith that he'd been sent to stamp out was, of course, a great embarrassment to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. Paul knew that going back there was risking imprisonment and even death, but he was willing to go anyway. Acts twenty sixteen tells us that Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. You see, Paul was in such a hurry to get to Jerusalem that he takes the ship that will bypass Ephesus without stopping. The boat did, however, have to change out its cargo in the town of Miletus, which was about 12 miles to the south of Ephesus. And as a way of saving time, and I'm suspecting as well as a way of saving heartache, Paul calls for the Ephesian elders to come and meet him in the city of Miletus. Now, I want you to think about it. If you were unlikely to ever see somebody again, what would be the very last thing that you would say to them? Well, let's find out what the last thing is Paul wants to say to these Ephesian elders. It's in the text of Acts 20, starting in verse 17. He knows that he's not going to see them again. 
From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So he reminds them of his example to them from the very beginning. And from the start, he had served the Lord, do you see in the text, with all humility. Now, I think that Satan has really confused us about humility over the years, making us believe that a humble person is actually a person who makes less of themselves or devalues themselves. But true biblical humility is not a case of thinking less of yourself. No, biblical humility is about not thinking of yourself at all. If you want to study this more, I'd recommend you look at John chapter 13, where Jesus very humbly washes his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. Because when you read that, you're going to see that Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he had come from. He knew where he was going. He knew his power and authority, and yet humbly, with no thought for himself, he performed the task that no one else would. He washed their feet. Like his Lord before him, Paul also served with no thought for himself. Trials had come and actually they were very hurtful because you can see from the text that they brought Paul to tears and people, particularly the Jews, had opposed him and they tried to harm him and yet nothing stopped him, do you see? He kept nothing back that was helpful. To them, And he also never stopped teaching and preaching repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And even now, he says that he's continuing his work. Look at verse 22. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So even now, as he journeys toward Jerusalem, he didn't know specifically what lay ahead. The Holy Spirit, though, had been continually warning him that chains and afflictions awaited him. But none of that was enough to put him off because he was bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. You know, Paul often said that he was bondservant of Christ. And what he's doing there is he's drawing from something in the Old Testament. Because when a slave had been set free, that slave could choose to continue to serve their master from their own free will as a bondservant. And Paul was free, yet he chose to be bound to the will of Christ. Nothing moved him because he knew that his joy was really tied to him fulfilling God's call on his life. He knew that they wouldn't see him again. And so he speaks to them about finishing his race, his ministry, and 
actually even his life. Look at verse 25. And indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Because Paul would never see them again, it was very important for him to remind them of how he had been faithful to speak the whole word of God to them and actually to all people. Now, I know it might seem strange for him to say here that he is innocent of the blood of all men, but what he's doing is he's drawing from something that they would have understood from the Old Testament. You see, in those days, cities were encircled with protective walls upon which city watchmen would stand, and they would be ready there to raise the alarm if they saw an approaching threat. Now, in the past, God had been very clear. If a watchman failed to warn those in the city of coming danger, he would be accountable for their blood. It would be on his head. However, if he cried out the warning, he would be guilty of no man's blood, even if the people chose to ignore him. The same had been true for Paul, and you know what? It's the same that is true for us also. We are to lovingly share the truth of the gospel with others. We're to warn them of the coming judgment and also the way in which they can be saved. If we do not, we stand responsible for not sharing the truth of the gospel. But like those watchmen of old, you and I are not responsible for how people react to our message because that is their own God-given free will choice. Paul, he had been faithful to share the truth in love. He'd shared God's word and he knew that he was guilty of no man's blood and he wanted these leaders to follow in his example and actually you and I need to follow in his example also. We must speak the truth of Christ in love to others to help them to receive the message but how they receive the message is really up to them. He goes on to warn the elders in verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. See how he stresses the fact that as a good watchman he'd warned them day and night? I want you to notice verse 28 though. Do you see how he emphasizes the fact that the flock belongs to God? Christ has purchased the flock with his own blood. He is the great shepherd of the sheep, and the elders are merely overseers. They are to carefully guard the flock, as well as the truth that Paul had taught them. But verse 28 is very clear that they are to take heed for themselves first. Do you see it there? Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. It's very important for any leader to understand that it's not merely about caring for others and leading them. 
we always have to pay very careful attention to our own walk first. Because the truth is, is that you cannot lead anyone where you yourself are not prepared to go. So Paul warns them here to take heed for themselves. And he also says that wolves will come among them in the days ahead in the form of false teachers. And in fact, some are even going to rise up from within the church itself, rather like wolves in sheep's clothing. These are going to be people who speak, do you see, perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And I think that that really is often the truth because false teachers always try to draw followers for themselves, whereas godly teachers always direct others to follow Christ. That Greek word in the text for perverse is actually diastrepho, meaning a distortion of the truth that turns people away from the right path. In other words, these false teachers would be very close to the truth, but there would be a slight distortion, a slight twist. And therefore, because Satan is so cunning and deceptive, Paul wants them to watch and remember all that he taught them of the word of God and also all that he'd done in their presence over the three years that he was with them. And do you see that it wasn't only the hurts and the trials that had made Paul cry, it was also his concern for the lost that brought him to tears, because for three years he did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And this is certainly a valid thought for us today about false teachers, because in 2004 a Christian research group here in the United States formed 10 principles that would determine a biblical worldview. These simple principles included statements like moral truth is based on the Bible, that the Bible is accurate, that Jesus is without sin, that Satan exists, that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, that salvation is by grace alone, and that all Christians have a responsibility to evangelize. Those were just some of the statements that they had. What was very surprising was that they discovered only 51% of American pastors actually agreed with all 10. It was only 51% who had that worldview. So then the question is, if that is the case even in America, how do we stand against false teaching? My brother-in-law used to be a bank manager and he worked his way up from the very bottom of the bank. And he told me something very interesting that happened when he was a teller. The bank trained them to recognize counterfeit currency. And you would think that they would put out every false bill that they'd ever received out in front of the tellers so that the tellers could learn how to spot them, right? But they didn't. The tellers were only ever given real currency to train on. You see, the more experience they had in touching and seeing the genuine bills, the easier it was for them to recognize the counterfeits when they touched them or saw them. And in the same way, Paul encourages the Ephesian elders to study the word of God and to put it into practice in order to safeguard themselves against counterfeit teachers. So for us, it's not so much a matter of finding out every false thing that has ever been taught, but rather we are to be familiar with the truth of God's word ourselves. 
Look at verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see, he entrusts them to God and to the word of God's grace, which is able to build them up in the things of God. Grace is a very important word. You know, mercy is when God does not treat you in the way that you really deserve. But grace is when he treats you in a wonderful way that you've done nothing to deserve. You can think of grace being God's riches at Christ's expense. God's word of grace not only builds up believers, but it's able to set us apart to be useful to him. Now, there in verse 32, where Paul speaks of those who are sanctified, he uses a Greek word, hagiadzo, for sanctified, which means something that is consecrated or set apart for God. The Greek word, though, has a beautiful picture to it about something that has been redeemed. I want you to think of it this way. Think of the fact that there is a bowl covered in filth lying buried in a heap of garbage. But that bowl is picked up from the trash heap, it's washed, it's cleansed of all the defilement and set aside for new and noble use. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is able to do that with people. We have been picked up from the trash heap of life. We've been washed, we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, and we've been set aside for new and noble purposes by God himself. Paul continues reminding them of how they'd seen him live for God when he was with them. In verse 33, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Though the workman is worthy of his wages, and although Paul would have been within his rights to receive assistance from the church while he had been with them, he had purposefully chosen to work hard as a tent maker to support himself and not be a burden to them. He'd even shared what he had with others. Paul had never been greedy for personal gain, and he urged these elders to live in exactly the same way. You see, it's not really about collecting up more for ourselves. It's all about spreading the good news of Jesus far and wide. Paul was really saying to the elders from Ephesus the very same thing he said later to the church at Philippi when he wrote to them in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9, saying, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. What an incredible challenge to each one of us, don't you think? I mean, how many of us could really tell others, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice? 
My father was not a believer in Jesus Christ, and I remember growing up, he always used to say to me, do as I say, not as I do. The truth is, whether we like it or not, all of us are leaving an example of some kind, and as Christians, we should be able to say, do as I do. Now, I know that sometimes that makes people very worried that we have to be perfect, when really all it means is that we have to be transparent. Let me explain. The Bible says to us in Romans chapter 3, 23, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God from his standards. In Ecclesiastes 7, 20, we're told, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. We can never be right with God based on what we do, simply because none of us are perfect in our own strength. No matter how hard we try, we're always going to fall short at some point. But one of my favorite scriptures is Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 that speaks of Christ's death on the cross and says that by that one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. If we accept Jesus as our substitute, we can be perfect in God's eyes because Jesus' blood shed on the cross has paid our debt of sin. But whereas the verse says that we are made perfect forever, it also speaks of us as being those who are still in the process of being made holy. Holiness is an ongoing, continuous progression. On the one hand, God does see us as perfect because Jesus has paid our debt. But on the other hand, we still struggle to live the way that he wants us to. Even Paul knew the struggle, saying in Romans 7.21, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Holiness is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's not something that we can do in our own strength, but it is something that we have to cooperate with. It is God who is making us holy. He picks us up off that trash heap of life. He washes us clean, and he is the one who will use us for new and better things. But it is a process. We, like Paul, are to leave an example of honest perseverance for others to follow. So being a good role model isn't about pretending to be perfect for others, Rather, it's about honestly modeling the fact that we are in process with God and that we are seeking to do his will, even though there might be times when we mess up. We all need to understand that although Jesus accepts us just as we are, he doesn't want us to stay the way we are. He wants to transform us so that we will be an example to others as we follow the Lord and allow him to change us. This kind of transformation isn't instant, and it usually isn't easy either. A changed life can take time, but it will happen as we begin to read the Word of God and ask the Holy Spirit to help us be the people that God knows we can be. Look at the love Paul shows in verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, 
that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. The final thing that Paul did was to pray for those he loved. He wouldn't part from them without entrusting them all into God's care. How he loved these people, and yet he knew that God loved them even more than he did. It was a sad parting. No wonder he hadn't wanted to go into Ephesus itself and to see all of the disciples there. It must have been so very hard. And yet, Paul had a task to undertake. And like Jesus before him, Paul set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He never did see them again because when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, the Jewish leadership quickly had him arrested on false charges. And after what ended up being years imprisonment, he was eventually sent in shackles to Rome. It was from his prison cell in about the year 60 that he wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus that we are going to be studying. You won't want to miss our next lesson. I look forward to you joining me then. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that it is by your grace that we are saved, not by works so that none can boast. Rather, Lord God, Jesus has shed his blood on our behalf. Lord, you are the one who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, works in us, cleansing us, renewing us, and making us whole. Lord, we pray that we would be useful to your kingdom, that we would lovingly share the truth of your word with others, that they too might come to faith in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, for all that you've said to our hearts today. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Tune in next time when she will be continuing this study on the book of Ephesians. Michelle offers workbooks on this study and others at her website at intheword.com, where you can also read her blog. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer.